Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So this is going to be a very unironic appreciation of the monkeys. The monkeys, I don't know, if you're young, the monkeys were a band formed in the 1960s, I mean mid-1960s, ostensibly for the purpose of being in a TV show that would sort of resemble A Hard Day's Night. Uh, the monkeys would sort of resemble the Beatles. And, and I think it's fair to say that the monkeys were always, the four monkeys were always maybe a little more than that, maybe a little bit more than they were being asked to do and, and sort of pushed back against the constraints of the stardom that they kind of blundered into. Uh, meanwhile, they had the services of some of the best songwriters in the business, Brill building songwriters like Carole King and Neil Diamond. They left a wonderful musical legacy, and we are going to celebrate that and other aspects of The Monkees. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from... Everyone we meet Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around All right, it has finally happened. We're doing a show about the monkeys. And it's kind of amazing to me that we haven't done a show about the monkeys sooner. Uh, I'm a big monkeys fan. We did, in fact, spend an hour with Peter Tork quite a few years ago before his death uh, here in the studio. Um, and that was thrilling in its own way. Uh, I am an unapologetic monkeys fan uh, from way back. I, at some point, I am going to tell on this show today a really embarrassing fact about myself, which I have never shared with anybody, anybody at all. So, but it involves the monkeys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's something you could all really look forward to. So before we introduce our guests, we have a really great lineup of guests. I should also say that on December 10th, uh, just as I was going on the air, the news broke that uh, Mike Nesmith had died. He is the third monkey to die. Mickey Dolenz now is the only surviving monkey. And that was kind of a body blow. Um and I had been talking to Jennifer LaRue, who's a freelance producer. She had mentioned doing a monkey show. I said, well, we have to do this now. I mean, we really we can't delay it any longer. Uh, not because I think Mickey Dolenz is going to die, but it just seems like, you know, we've got to get going on this somehow. So, um, but the thing I really wanted to do, uh, for, oh, I was going to say, we have a terrific guest lineup today, uh, including uh, a gentleman who managed the monkeys for 10 years. Uh, we have a scholar who's written, even from kind of a sort of feminist point of view, uh, about the monkeys. Uh, we have a musician and kind of music writer, whom you'll be meeting in a second. We have a secret special guest, who I will not yet name. But before we do any of that, I want to just quickly tell you a story. And Kat, we're going to go to A4 pretty quickly here. So in 2012, I'm sitting there, like a lot of people in America, watching the latest episode of Breaking Bad because, you know, as many people know, I also have a meth lab in my basement. Uh, and there's some meth lab scene. And behind it, there's no spoken words. Just behind it is this music playing. Going down. 
And even though I'm a big Monkees fan, I was having trouble. I couldn't figure out what song that was. I was. I said to the other person in the room, I know this song, but I don't understand where I know it from because it fits so perfectly into that moment. And and that's one of the things that still strikes me about a lot of these songs. Monkees songs are good songs, uh, and good songs have a lot of durability. And if you had told somebody else that this song had been written specifically for this scene in 2012, that other person would believe you. I think there's nothing particularly dated sounding about that song. Uh, but there are other people better qualified to pronounce upon that. Uh, you're about to meet one of them, uh, Mark Rozo, a musician and contributing editor at Vanity Fair, uh, who wrote a piece arguing, if that's the right word, that the Monkees are the most influential pop rock band ever. Uh, a case he made in, a, in our article titled The Most Influential Pop Rock Band Ever? Question mark, the Monkees. Uh, so you see what I mean now. So, Mark, um, first of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And, and maybe you could just comment on what I just said and that idea that, you know, there are certain Monkees songs which if you didn't know them and heard them now in 2022, it wouldn't necessarily strike you that these were very dated compositions that were located very specifically in 1967. Yeah, I think I love your point about the durability of a great pop song. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that, interestingly, sometimes things that seem to endure and exist out of time are also the things that really nail their time as well. And I would say that the Monkees certainly did that. And uh, gosh, it was great to hear that snippet of, of, of going down. I haven't heard that song um, in a while, although I did hear the Monkees play it live when they came to uh, play a show at Town Hall in the fall in New York City, which is where I live. Um, and it was my one and only time seeing the Monkees. And I, I was, of course, now so glad that I had that opportunity, but I was really blown away. It was such a marvelous show. Um, the band sounded great. The place was packed. The crowd was a mix of boomers, Xers, millennials, um, 20 somethings <laughs> dancing in the aisles, hipsters from Williamsburg. Uh, it was, I have to say, it was amazing. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I saw Marky Ramon there as well. And it showed <laughs> how much the monkey's music has impacted multiple generations and uh, continues to. And a lot of that does have to do with the the enduring greatness of, of a lot of those songs. So we'll just remind people that this was a band that was kind of a manufactured thing at the beginning. This was a project by, among other people, Bob Rafelson, who went on to become a legendary movie director, Five Easy Pieces, and then Postman Always Rings Twice, um, and, and, and another guy. Uh, they recruited some other legendary screen talents, including Paul Mazursky, who I think may have won an Oscar for An Unmarried Woman, but who wrote most of the episodes for this TV show. The idea was there was going to be a TV show, and, and it was going to be about an aspiring band, and there was going to be something very beat Lesk about them. There would be a little bit of the vibe of Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night about the style, the comedy style of this. But, but Mark, I think you would argue that in many ways, these four young men who were recruited to do this exceeded what the expectations uh, of their Svengali-like management team were uh, and, and really legitimately wanted to be so much more than they were initially being allowed to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think uh, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider had the good sense to cast four uh, guys who were tremendously talented and who actually had careers uh, predating the Monkees in music in one way or the other. And that, um, you know, I do think that, um, that Rafelson and Schneider did have pretty high hopes 
for this uh, concoction, the, the so-called prefab four, insofar as they had the great idea of creating a band out of these young men living in Los Angeles, putting them on prime time, having them record songs, having the songs in the TV show every week, having the songs released uh, on album going to radio, uh, we're seeing a very, um, a very bold 1960s uh, version of the uh, entertainment industry idea of synergy. And it worked like a charm. And as you say, it probably worked beyond anyone's imaginings of how far this thing could go. Here we are in 2022 talking about it. And I'm reminded of this wonderful sentence that Michael Nesmith came up with in his also very wonderful 2017 memoir, which is called Infinite Tuesday. And he said something about how the monkeys started out as being a copy of the 1960s and then became a fact of the 1960s. Um, and that, I think, sums up their phenomenon quite well. I think another thing about them was uh, that... Um, there was something, I mean, you couldn't be a Beatle. You know, the Beatles were demigods by the time the monkeys uh, arrived on the scene. Uh, they were sort of demigods almost from the jump. Um, so, you know, but you could sort of imagine yourself, and there was something aspirational. There was an on-ramp uh, or a stepladder about the monkeys that maybe went in the direction uh, of the Beatles, but, but not that high. You could sort of identify yeah. with these people, right? Oh, absolutely. It's such a great point to make because the monkeys... There's so many layers here. It's almost like uh, like metafiction or something. But the Monkees in the show were a band that was not nearly as huge as the Monkees were in, in reality. <laughs> you know, they were living together in this pad in L.A. and maybe not always doing so well. And, yeah, you could fully identify with them. And it was a marvelous stroke and one that actually, in a weird way, I think was of a, a, a thing that uh, Ravelson and Schneider pulled out of the Beatles phenomenon, where, as you say, almost from the get-go, the Beatles seemed to be full-time residents of Mount Olympus. I mean, they had that impact, and yet there was something super relatable about them. They decided to discard a lot of the usual show business niceties and speak their minds and be smart Alex, and, and, and you felt like they were your friends. And that idea was brought into the monkeys show in a in a very uh, smart way and very much uh, at the forefront of of their appeal. All right. So we have to also deal with this other problem, which is that for a long stretch of time, I mean, I think everybody is now very comfortable being a monkey file. Um, but for a long stretch of time, it was just not cool to like the monkeys. This is summed up in a clip from, of course, The Simpsons, uh, when the young Marge Simpson uh, is boarding. She's remembering boarding her school bus with a monkey's lunchbox. This is A5, Cat. Ew, you like the monkeys? You know they don't write their own songs. They do so. They don't even play their own instruments. <gasps> no, no. That's not even Michael Nesmith's real hat. <laughs> So, so there was a lot of that, right? That the the monkeys were inauthentic, and the Beatles were authentic. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of other music that was you know very popular at the time seemed to have a different kind of raw cachet, and and there was this sense that the monkeys were a product, and they labored, uh, I think, under uh, under a burden of uncoolness. Uh, maybe you could just say a few words about that. 
Well, I think absolutely that that's the case. And that clip from The Simpsons is so funny to listen to because it is actually making fun of that whole idea of taking this all maybe a little bit too seriously. I mean, I have to I have to say as a as a generation extra myself, you know, I I'm not old enough to uh, remember the monkeys when they were in prime time and, you know, clogging the AM um, radio airwaves. I got to them a little bit later in the 70s. And I think that's probably when a lot of monkey monkeys fans were uh, you know, were born when the Monkeys TV show was enjoying a very long and robust life in syndication. So to bring it back to the Beatles, let's say, if you were into music at that time, Hard Day's Night would come on TV maybe once a year, you know, and mm-hmm. you, it was like an appointment viewing opportunity. <laughs> and you might get out your Radio Shack tape recorder and tape the thing. The Monkeys were on every day after school, week after week, year after year. Um, and that stuff got into your uh, into your soul almost. And yes, there was always like the cool older brother or sister who would say, eh, you know, they didn't play on the records. Which first of all, is false. Uh, they did play on the records. The first album um, was mostly played by session musicians from the legendary Wrecking Crew. I'm talking about drummers like Hal Blaine, bass player Carol Kay. As I mentioned in the piece, you know, the irony here is that that band could have blown any so-called authentic 60s band probably off the stage. Um, But I think something also for Monkees fans, uh, just again, to speak specifically Monkees fans around my age, is that the older that we got, and I should note that there was something very gateway about the Monkees introducing us really to the joys of musical uh, appreciation and discovery as we got older somehow and more sophisticated and listened to more things we didn't abandon the monkeys but we began to see all the interesting layers there uh some of these things that we're talking about the concoction of the monkeys the fact that um actually they they wrote great songs and used great songwriters they used these legendary um musicians the production of the records were phenomenal uh there was something weirdly subversive about this TV show in primetime in 66, 67, that might look, you know, sort of cute and funny to us, but was doing something at the time that other shows were not doing at all. And this just only added to our fascination with them um, um, as actually being real and being impactful. and, uh, you know, I mentioned the piece, it's sort of a little flippant, but it's true that, um, you know, the oft repeated sort of joke or incrimination against the monkeys was that, you know, they toured with Jimi Hendrix in 67 and, and Hendrix actually opened for the monkeys. Um, wow. How about that? Um, you know, I mentioned that among some of my music snob friends, fellow musicians and writers that I've probably had more conversations, kind of embarrassing (laughs) to admit it, about the monkeys than I've had about Jimi Hendrix, as much as I love Hendrix, like all right-thinking people do, that there's something about the monkeys that really, they're endlessly fascinating and occupy this very unique space in our imagination. Absolutely. And and I should say, another point worth making here, and then we're going to bring in our secret special guest. I mean, um, (laughs) Hal Blaine, uh, who grew up about two miles from where I'm sitting right now. But Hal Blade and Carol Kay and all those musicians, they all played on Pet Sounds, too. And, and you know, Oh, my I mean, God, yes. I mean, nobody went around saying, well, Brian Wilson isn't a real musician. Uh, you know. Oh, my God, it's such a fantastic point. That's exactly it. And a lot of those people played on 
early uh, Birds records, and it's hard for me to think of a band I love more than the than the Birds. And of course, who wrote "So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star" with a lot of people, which a lot of people thought was a put down of the Monkees, which I think was more of an indictment of the music industry in general. But yeah, uh, so many wonderful records were made with the Wrecking Crew, and then you go to Motown. Think of that amazing studio band: American Studios in Memphis, Muscle Shoals, Stax. Um, there's a lot of great music that we still love that made a huge impact at the time that were created by incredible studio musicians. All right. Well, we don't have Brian Wilson here today, but we do have Brian Williams, <laughs> uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Brian uh, Williams, uh, newsman extraordinaire, uh, recently retired from MSNBC so he could spend more time listening to Monkey's records and, and talking about them on public radio. Uh, and he is joining us now. Brian Williams, how are you? Uh, fine, thank you. I feel like I'm at an MA meeting, Monkeys Anonymous. I feel like <laughs> I should get up and put some money in the coffee jar and say, my name is Brian, and I started listening to the Monkeys at age seven. Hi, Brian. That's what we're all supposed to say. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, before I let you talk, i um, actually play a little bit of the song that you picked out, Kat. This is uh, A3. This is kind of a deep cut, although it's actually from my personal favorite Monkeys album. It's called Daily Nightly. All right. Uh, Brian Williams, I want to hear your whole monkey story, but maybe we can start with why this particular cut? Well, when you're the anchor of Nightly News, putting together a daily blog, (laughs) you would probably call it the Daily Nightly, even if there wasn't a song featuring Mickey Dolan's vocals called the Daily Nightly. Um, And the song itself is truly interesting. It has the feel of a couple of guys sitting around with a new Moog synthesizer saying, what does this button do? What what sounds can we make this? And that's exactly, it turns out, what the song is. Right. The Mickey owned the, the third one, I think, uh, ever sold. Uh, and this may be the first, probably the first pop song that, that actually utilized this. So I uh, say a little bit more about the monkeys. I mean, how did they come to be important to you? Well, I turned 63, so that puts me right in the sweet spot for Monkey's fandom. I was a kid, seven, eight years old, um, first exposure age of a lot of Monkey's fans, and I just I couldn't get enough of the photos and liner notes. I mean, I never bought Tiger Beat magazine because I have standards, but uh, <laughs> I, I was... I was obsessed with these guys and and Mike was the guy I wanted to be. I could not understand why I couldn't grow lamb chop sideburns at age eight. Um, (laughs) I did not look as good in a knit hat. Come to find out there were seven original knit hats. Um, And I just thought they were fantastic. I knew nothing um, uh, to uh, Mark's point um, of these 
four guys who later struggled to slip the surly bonds of the Brill building and break out on their own as musicians. So, um, first of all, I'm going to, I'll now admit my really, really embarrassing thing, but you have to not tell it to our mutual friend, Mr. Carp, which is I arrived in 1972 on the campus of Yale University with a knit hat, which I wore in a certain way. And I never mentioned this to anybody, but I thought I looked like a monkey. Uh, you know, I thought I was sort of approachable and cool in the way the monkeys were. I mean, I emphatically was not. Um, but um, I'm glad to get those off my chest since we are at an MA meeting. Uh, and... Let me ask you, ask you this. I, watching you on 30 Rock, you're, you're very funny. And, and it occurred to me, getting ready for this, that perhaps some of your comic timing, self-aggrandizing comic style that you brought to Tina Fey's material, it, it, it's, it's something a little monkeys-like about it. Would you think they might be a comedy influence on you, too? Well, to paraphrase Ed Sullivan, they were the wacky mop tops, and uh, it was a fast pace. Of course, it was it was edited, and uh, what the the ad libbing we saw that they were allowed to do, the kind of later takes for themselves that were genuinely funny. Uh, there was no way to discern that from scripted when we were kids or watching now as adults. But sure, all of it, that was kind of at the vanguard of a newly emerging, spawned by the Beatles, newly emerging kind of 60s comic sensibility that took a much more uh, realistic turn as the 60s gave way to the 70s. But that was the difference. These four guys, we were asked to imagine them living together, watching the show today, uh, especially without the benefit of edibles, is a total trip back in uh, willing suspension of disbelief. Speak for yourself about the edibles, but um, okay. the, uh, so Mark Rosso, I, I assume you're still here. You're the reason I we even knew that Brian Williams was a monkeys fan. Uh, you mentioned that in your Vanity Fair article, um, and I mean, I, I, maybe Mark, I didn't ask you too much about the comedy, but it, it is a big part of this, right? They kind of introduced. It might even not even be an overstatement to say it's a slightly kind of postmodern comic style. Yeah, it is. And I have to say, I was really glad to be able to uh, drag Brian Williams into my effort to <laughs> legitimize the, the monkeys. And uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you right now. But certainly the, the comedy of the monkeys um, was a huge thing for, you know, for us as kids. And, um, you know, you saw that continue in Michael Nesmith's amazing polyglot career as he went into the 70s and 80s and made uh Elephant Parts, which was his very Python-esque uh, series of short um, videos, which had a lot to do with uh, inspiration behind uh, starting MTV. And in fact, uh, Nesmith won uh, the very first Grammy for, um, for uh, video in uh, 1982, I believe. So uh, a huge, huge part of the monkey's appeal. All right. You know, um, Mark, before we lose you, I, I want to play one of the songs that you picked out. And this, this is also kind of a deep cut. Um, and it's called Papa Jean's Blues. It's probably worth saying even before we play it. This is a Mike Nesmith tune. And it's good to do it with Brian. Now we find out that Brian is a Nesmith wannabe. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a song that Nesmith had been playing kind of on the folk circuit well before he became a monkey. He played at the, at the Troubadour uh, in L.A. We'll play a little bit of it and then have Mark and possibly Brian as well say something about it. And now with you as inspiration, I look toward a destination, sunny, bright, that once before was blue. 
I have no more than I did before But now I've got all that I need For I love you and I know you love me He defeated, but uh, yeah, Mark, say a little bit about this. Um, man, it's just so good. You know, as I understand it, that was a very early Nesmith song, one that he had written be- even before The Monkees. And when he was cast on the show and the conversation turned to the music that they were going to do, uh, Michael came forward and said, hey, I've got some songs. And I think that was one. And he played it. Uh, for the producers, and the response was, "Well, that's really nice, but uh, it's not really a monkey song." The thing, that, and, yeah, and, you know, and Esme said, "Well, I'm in the monkeys," <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> it did become a monkey song. One of the early, uh, better tracks. Love that Latin percussion. It's re- it's just a great funky recording. I think, by the way, because I did a little bit of uh, homework, I think that's Bill Pittman playing bass on that. Um, you know, another funny thing about this, famously, uh, Stephen Stills uh, was one of the people who uh, uh, auditioned to be a monkey, uh, as did apparently maybe Harry Nilsson and, and Paul Williams, not Charles Manson. Um, and and Stills kind of got his friend from Greenwich Village, Peter Tork, to audition as well. They didn't like S- Stephen Stills' <laughs> teeth, so <laughs> they didn't use them. Um, but, you know, I mean, that could be a Buffalo Springfield song. Uh, Sit Down, I Think I Love You could be a monkey song, right? I mean, the, the sound wound up not being all that different. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of these guys were hanging out together in L.A., probably hanging out at the Troubadour, playing folk music, equally influenced by Dylan and the Beatles. You know, the Birds were the ones who got out ahead of that and created folk rock. But a, a lot of uh, shared influence and I think shared time among people like Stills, Tork, uh, Nesmith, etc. And Brian Williams, this that is a nice example of the sound that Nesmith brought. Uh, I assume December 10th was a, you know, a genuinely pretty sad day for you hearing that he had passed. It was uh, full-on bittersweet, and here's why. Uh, I'm minding my own business in New York uh, a decade ago, and uh, I had befriended Jill Cremens, the um, noted photographer, wife of Kurt Vonnegut, and longtime Monkees fan. She had once traveled on the road and and shot some real fantastic uh, uh, photos of the Monkees, and she asked if I'd be willing to go to uh, the Beacon to see uh, what was by then uh, Mickey and Mike, the last two surviving monkeys. I did, and that started a decade-long friendship with Mike, of all things, just as George was my favorite Beatle, Mike was my favorite monkey. And we had years enough and time enough for me to totally um, confess to him that he was the guy this young eight-year-old wanted to be. And it's bittersweet because while Mike was a, kind of benevolent stoner living overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And I'm so glad you have their manager standing by. He he was lovely to me. And I last saw him up at Mohegan Sun uh, when I saw Mike and Mickey play on their farewell tour. I got home that night after the show. This is just a few months back and said to my wife, Mike's dying. Mm-hmm. And um, I was with him in some intimate moments in his his trailer in his dressing room and walking him to stage and it was clear this christian scientist who had turned down a lot of medical attention in his life was dying Mm. and uh he wanted to get back to los angeles he wanted this tour 
to end successfully. Um, but I'm so happy and proud and what a, what a miracle of modern life that you can grow up from an eight-year-old fan of a group to someday sit back and be texting one of them at his home in California um, from your office in New York. But uh, he was a delightful guy, an iconoclast, um, kind of, as I said, a benevolent stoner who was prickly at one point in his career, but um, was decidedly a kind gentleman in the latter half. Yeah, and I would also uh, join in with Mark to say Infinite, Infinite Tuesday is actually a really good book, and it's also sprinkled with you know obscure Schrodinger quotes and McLuhan stuff, and the guy obviously also was kind of an autodidact in, in a very good way. Well, listen, Brian Williams, I actually think you may have a future in this public radio business if you get interested. Uh, I'm trying. I miss the commercials. What you guys need <laughs> is commercial breaks, man. Sell some stuff. Yeah, we're going to do one for vinyl replacement windows just to make you feel at home. But, um, sure. but thanks for doing this. this so great. Uh, Brian Williams with us. Mark Rosa with us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to look at a couple of other aspects of the monkeys. The local rock group down the street is trying hard to learn their song. Serenade the weekend squire just came out to mow his lawn. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Seem a way that she won't come and lose my mind. It's too easy humming songs to a girl in yellow dress. It's been a long time since the party, and the room is in a mess. The four kings of EMI are sitting stately on the floor. There are birds out on the sidewalk and a ballet. 
Love to play more, but we're already kind of pressed for time here. This is an action-packed show. Joining us now is Dr. Roseanne Welch, Executive Director of the Stephen College MFA in TV and Screenwriting, a writer with credits uh, on Beverly Hills 90210, Touched by an Angel, and the author of the 2016 book, Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk about the monkeys any chance I get. Okay. Well, there's sort of a way I'm going to begin uh, by we've already played a Simpsons cut. But, you know, another aspect to to, to the monkeys that might link them to the Simpsons is that Lisa Simpson is often seen reading a uh, as a preteen, reading a kind of fanzine called Non-Threatening Boys. Uh, (laughs) And there's a way in which the monkeys were kind of the original non-threatening boys, right? They were cute enough to be sexy, but they weren't dangerous. This is exactly true. In fact, I have Brian Williams beat in my fandom because I married Mickey in my grandparents' basement with a double wedding and my cousin who married Davey every Saturday of our childhood. <laughs> and I, I, this sounds like some Rupert Pupkin thing from King of Comedy. I, I'm not exactly sure what this involved. <laughs> oh, you know, it involved wearing whatever looked like a, a first communion dress and walking down the steps and pretending that they were standing next to you because we were deeply in love and we were seven and eight at the time. So, so they were truly safe. So, you know, I mentioned the fact that uh, Rafelson and Schneider, they initially thought that this would be kind of a little bit of an outgrowth or a reverberation on a hard day's night. And Richard Lester famously is a very kind of postmodern director playing a lot with the fourth wall. One of the things that you talk about with the monkeys is that they were very, very good at this thing, uh, but just subtly and sometimes directly calling attention to the to the artifice of being on a TV show. They were. It's what we would call in the, in the scholarly world. We call that metatextuality. Um, and I was going to call the book the magic metatextuality of the monkeys, but the publishers were afraid that would be too academic for people. All right. And just to give people a sense of the metatextuality, uh, Kat, we're going to do a B1 right here from the show. So that's, uh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. It's pretty scary. You know, it's even more scary. What? You can't say on television. The word they're saying is hell. Uh, it was a different time. You, you can say hell now. <laughs> it was. But I'm going to counter Brian Williams here with the fact that these things were written into the script by the writing team. And this was an impressive writing team for the time. I mean, Joe Gardner, who ran the show, had written speeches for RFK when he was running for Senate in New York. And Treva Silverman is going to go on to win two Emmys for writing on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Peter Meyerson is going to invent Welcome Back, Cotter. They're all really excellent comedic writers. And a lot of this stuff was put in the script because people who understand television understand that you have to plan where the cameras will go and you have to know what the lighting is. So there is some some ad-libbing but not very much. It's really down to the writing, and they were great writers. Right. Although I think there are also two kind of interesting turns that that helped that whole quality. The first was, infamously, uh, when they first tested the show, they they did not have their own names. They had character names assigned to them. And and the test audiences really didn't like this. I mean, it was a very unpopular and unsuccessful uh, testing of a pilot episode. And one of the switches that was made was to give them back their own names so they would be Mike, Mickey, Peter, and uh, Davey. Uh, and, and I think that helps with the metatextuality, right? There's a way in which now they become actual people who, for some reason or other, are kind of trapped in this television reality. In many ways, that's true. And yet it also was, as you mentioned earlier, a problem in their futures because people commingled the fact that they were them, but they weren't, but they are. And they forgot that Mickey had been a child star at the age of 10 and had his own show. So he was an actor. 
he could play any part, but sophisticated audiences didn't really exist back then. So they kind of thought you were just that one character forever. And that was a problem that we don't thankfully fall into today. Someone like Neil, Pat Neil Patrick Harris can be, tend to be both um, the guy in the streaming show on Netflix right now, as well as How I Met Your Mother and Doogie Howser. We've allowed him to do all those things that we didn't give these guys a chance. And host the, the Tonys. Um, exactly. So, um, so yeah, and, and I think another thing that, that wound up being added, and I think there are sort of complicated reasons for this, including the fact that there was sort of a chaotic quality to the taping, and they were sometimes a minute short at the end of their yeah. taping. Oh, but yes. they started throwing in stuff from their own screen tests, stuff that really was, in terms of knocking down the fourth wall, Gary Shandling style, stuff that really started to kind of break through years before people started using that term. Oh, and this is where what Mark said earlier about them fitting into the 60s. I mean, they were truly teenagers of the 60s. And so if they sat around and were asked questions about things like the, the Sunset Strip riots, Mickey said that he was there. And he talked about them as demonstrations and about teenagers wanting more empowerment in their life. And this is a time, we have to remember, when you didn't vote until you were 21. So under the age of 21, you really had no power in this country. So um, the other part of this that, that I hadn't given much thought to until encountering you and your work is, is the depiction of women uh, on the monkeys. Uh, and you make a, the case that, you know, this is the mid-60s and this is sort of the tail end of Beatlemania. So our understanding of what girls or young women did was scream and cry and faint in the presence of rock stars. <laughs> uh, you make the argument that uh, on the monkeys TV show, they did much more than that. I was a little worried when I went to study the show because I thought, oh, gosh, what if I'm going to be embarrassed by how stupid the women are on this show? But I discovered in 58 episodes, every single girl they met had a job, whether they were journalists or musicians. Dean Martin's daughter, famously Deanna Martin, played in the episode Some Like It Lukewarm as a rock and roller. And they all had jobs. Even in the pilot, we meet a princess, which is very reminiscent of Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday. And that's a job. And she chooses her work. And I think that message, I always say, maybe embedded in me the idea that if you wanted to marry a monkey, you had to grow up to be a feminist. So uh, let's hear a little clip. This is B2Cat from that very pilot, from that very princess. What's the matter? It's just that there are so many responsibilities. The welfare of all my people. We'd be very honored if you could come and visit us. Perhaps for the coronation. No, I can't. What I have to do is hear with the guys and our music. I see. I can't see why you're so down about going back anyway. You're the queen. That's what you have to do. So there's that idea of, of obligation. Um, exactly. And, and, uh, and of responsibility. So um, I want to get you to react to... Uh, uh, a piece of music. I, I'm going to give you a choice because our time, unfortunately, is kind of limited. Uh, I know you have some thoughts about Sometime in the Morning, a Goffin and King track, as was Pleasant Valley, Valley Sunday, uh, sung by Mickey. Uh, there's also Rio Chiu, which is this Spanish folk song that's been recorded by, you know, John Rutter and the Royal Philharmonic and stuff like that. Pick, pick the one you want, you most want to talk about. Let's do Rio Chiu. Okay, let's uh, play a little bit of B4 Cat. Rio, Rio, Shiu, la Guadaribera, Dios guardó el lobo de nuestra cordera. 
Dios cuadro el lobo de nuestra codera, Riu, riu, shiu, la guada ribera. Dios cuadro cuando el lobo de nuestra codera, Dios cuadro cuando el lobo de nuestra codera. This uh, air actually aired uh, on the Monkeys TV show, I think maybe on their Christmas uh, episode. But uh, yeah, say a little bit about it. I think anyone who argues that they weren't musicians can stop right now by listening to just that small clip. It um, the fact that they use that as a piece of Christmas episode, a very silly episode, was typical for them. But to end on that beautiful note, and it actually aired on Christmas Day in 1967. I think it just shows how serious they were as both actors and musicians. They wanted this to be something people would remember. And it is something that turns around on Facebook every year. I see tons and tons of people post this and go, is this the monkeys? And I happily say it is, in fact, them from this <laughs> lovely show from 1967. All right, Dr. Roseanne Welch, uh, you're a pleasure to talk to. The book is Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. We'll take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to meet somebody who managed the monkeys. Just a loudmouth Yankee, I went down to Mexico I didn't have much time to spend about a week or so There I lightly took advantage of a girl who loved me so But I found myself thinking when the time had come to go What am I? comes tomorrow that's when I have to choose how I wish I could borrow someone else's shoes all right it's time to say some thank yous Kat Pastors our technical producer she's the one getting all these clips on the air so beautifully and making everything else happen so well Lily Tyson's our senior producer and she was definitely senior producer on this one uh, and a star is born in the world of producing Jennifer LaRue uh, is the person who conceived of and produced this show thanks very much to Jennifer LaRue uh, and now it's time for our final guest uh, Andrew Sandoval uh, manager of the monkeys from 2011 to 2021 host of the 60s music podcast come to the Sun uh, and the author of The Monkeys, The Day-by-Day Story. Uh, Andrew Sandoval, welcome to this conversation. Thanks very much, Colin. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, we've had so much fun already talking about them. You know, there's like a million little details uh, about them that are, are that people don't know or that are interesting. You know, that Davy Jones uh, had trained as a jockey uh, before getting into theater and I think was riding horses towards the end of his life. Uh, once again, that Michael Nesmith's mother invented liquid paper uh, here in Connecticut. We know that Peter Tork was the son of, I think, an economics professor at the University yes. of Connecticut. But, but you really knew these people. You knew them as people. And I just maybe begin by saying, uh, you know, we also hear, I mean, it's even in Nesmith's book, they didn't always get along. Nesmith says that he sometimes was trying to, just watching even fistfights uh, uh, unfold among the other three. But 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 who were they most of the time? What were they like to work with? Well, they were really a joy. And it's it was amazing to listen to the first part of your show because I hear the delight in everyone's voices, especially Brian Williams. Uh, just in their experience with the monkeys and getting to know the monkeys, 
uh, in the first person. So, uh, you know, my relationship with them evolved over three decades. I first met them in the 1980s as a fan and then began working for a label called Rhino Records that released all their music um, beginning in 1990. And about 15 years ago, Mickey Dolenz uh, said to me, you know, you're the only person I know who could pick up the phone and call all four of us on the same day and, you know, talk <laughs> to us. And, you know, why don't you try and reassemble us to do a tour, but no one can know that this is my idea. <laughs> and he was smart about that because, you know, in any creative situation, I'm sure with, with every one of your guests and, and everybody who's been in the group or worked on a radio show or anything, you know, that it takes a lot of people together working together, but not everybody wants to do the same thing. And the monkeys certainly never wanted to do the same thing, but they had to feel there was some sort of commonality. And I became an intermediary between the four of them to sort of join up their ideas and bring them out back to the public. You know, it's, it's like watching a movie and knowing there's a better way to end this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, so it was my function to, to bring them, especially back to the live concert stage uh, 10 years ago. And we've had a, a number of successes and uh, it was really a beautiful thing to watch them reconnect with their fans and to see them sort of um, fulfill this promise I felt that they always had. I always knew from the time I first heard them that that they had this inner strength and this this appeal that would delight people and made people really happy. You know, one of the people we uh, were going to put on this show, we just couldn't make the timing work, is a very, very old friend of ours, Jill Solbule, uh, but uh, we just couldn't make this work out. But Jill sent us this little, little tiny video of Davy Jones walking, I think, backstage to where she was at one of her gigs, and he's got his arms flung in the air, and he starts singing I Kissed a Girl, which was, you know, not the Katy Berry song, but Jill's first kind of putative hit. Uh, and you just sort of see a guy who... who First of all, he's kept up with music, and, and he also, he clearly loves music. He's just doing this, there's such delight on his face. You get the feeling, wow, these these guys, I mean, they, they loved music in addition to being very good at it. Yeah, the four of them were in, incredibly musical, and um, I think it was a real misnomer over the years that people said, oh, Peter Tork and Michael Nesmith are the musicians of the Monkees, and Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones are the are the actors. Uh, it it all four of them had a lot of experience in music, and I think music was their lifeblood. They were huge Beatles fans, and they they really were just primed to to get into uh, a group at the time when the Monkees was formed around them, uh, and and they they had such vitality too, uh, you know, all through their lives, and and it was just such a great time to to see them with people and and. People would always be surprised. They were the least pretentious artists I'd ever dealt with in my long career. I just, just brilliant and endlessly creative. I want to play a little bit of one song that I, I know that you uh, love, and it also gives me a chance to say a name we haven't said so far today, and that name is Adam Schlesinger, who produced and, and worked on so much Monkey's music. Adam, obviously, the one of the geniuses, geniuses behind Fountains of Wayne, and tragically, one of the first people to die of COVID at the outset of the pandemic. Uh, this is me and Magdalena.
You know, once again, I said this at the beginning of the show, Andrew. If 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 nobody knew this song and I told you it was recorded last week, I mean, I think that would be quite believable that some alt country band had recorded this song. Yeah, it's uh, it was written by Ben Gibbard uh, from Death Cab for Cutie, and it was from an album called Good Times that was released in 2016. Uh, for the monkeys' 50th anniversary, the monkeys, uh, the three extant monkeys, Peter, Mickey, and Michael, got together to make a new record with Adam producing. And I was one of the AR people bringing in the songs uh, and sort of twisting their arms to do them, much in the style of their original 60s records, because oftentimes they weren't always getting to do the kinds of songs and uh, express their vision the way they wanted to. And that was a colossal fight that they had with Don Kirshner uh, at that time. But ultimately, all of those interesting left turns they took musically uh, added up to why we're still talking about, about them today, I think. And again, you know, we got this demo in from Ben Gibbard, and initially Michael Nesbeth wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> I had to write him and call him several times. And then when he did, he ended up striking up this brilliant friendship with Ben. And uh, it was really beautiful to see the two of them interact and sing together. And Adam did just a, a brilliant job of arranging it. It's quite different from the demo. So it, to me, it was like uh, working on that record was really seeing the whole process of the monkeys in play as it was in the 1960s. And I thought if one good song comes from this record, it will be worth doing. And instead we got a whole album of good music. And uh, I think it's one of the most impressive feats for a band of that era to come back and do. Adam Sandoval, I wish we had more time. There's so much more to say. We never, in the course of this hour, even talked about the movie Head, which was written and produced by Jack Nicholson and uh, Bob Rafelson. Uh, so much more to say. Uh, so little time. Great to talk to uh, Andrew Sandoval, manager of the Monkees for 10 years and the author of The Monkees, the day-by-day story. Uh, thanks again to Jennifer LaRue for producing this. And let's go out with you know one of everybody's favorite Monkees tunes. And I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a trace A doubt in my mind I'm in love I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried Oh, oh. Then I saw her face. And I-